Welcome to Roots and Ruminants, your podcast for creative and innovative use of farm, pasture, and rangeland. We're going back to the basics of raising and grazing livestock, growing your own forage, and practical land use. We are live. Commodity Classic 2024 in Houston, Texas. Jared and I are sitting down, and we've got our first guest, and we're pumped. This is All good. Right. We actually have, a, we do have a line of people. That's so, awesome. uh, do you want to introduce our guest? I do, I do. Please. So I've known Jen for a few years. Okay. So Jen uh, works for National Association of Conservation Districts. Oh my gosh, this is so pertinent. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for joining us. Right. So many of our listeners would know that conservation districts in their local counties are a great resource for getting technical assistance and understanding all kinds of products and innovative things that they can do from a conservation standpoint. Um, and they've been really pivotal for generations, honestly, in the places that they're at. So, so Jen, welcome to Commodity Classic. Thank you. Hey, Jared. How many times have you been to Commodity Classic? This is my third one. Ah. It's always an adventure. That's good. So what are you hoping to get out of Commodity Classic? What are you looking for? Um, what, what's, your, uh, what's your goal here at Commodity Classic? Well, our goal is to sell conservation, um, but it's such an important piece of the conversation today, right? Because when we talk about all of these markets and, you know, climate smart um, commodities, that partnership program is huge and 3.1 billion dollars is no joke um, so it's actually fascinating when you walk around the trade floor how many people are part of a project in some ways and if they're not part of it yet how many producers we're trying to compete for to get into these programs yeah. so you know the practices piece that is what makes these climate markets work whether it's looking at like your scope three emissions reductions or just being part of that whole movement so really yeah. exciting opportunity to just talk about conservation. Yeah, so we're a couple organizations here that have been involved in conservation a long time. So Millbourne Seeds were noble for 37 years. The Conservation District, is that a, a byproduct of the 1930s? Yeah, the okay. first was established in 1937. So I usually start my story around 1933, kind of like okay. Sofia Petrillo with oh, the man. Golden Girls. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, in Sicily. <laughs> I love it. That's great. But yeah, I mean, when the Soil Erosion Service yeah. was established in 1933, um, same story today, right? We hear federal government can't tell farmers how to farm. Turns out it's the same thing as it was then. And so um, conservation districts are established um, to be that local voice. Because as you know, there's no one size fits all solution. And conservation districts are managed by a locally elected group of leaders to make sure that, you know, whatever priorities you're setting, it makes sense, that the economics are right for the community and that you're really representing the, the people that live there. This always blows my mind. How many conservation district uh, members do you have? Or sometimes they're called soil and water districts. Yeah. Sometimes they're watersheds. But how many members do you have nationally? So there are three thousand conservation districts and seventeen thousand governing board members. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. And each one has a state association that's a nonprofit body that also represents them for state-level advocacy. And yeah. it's a very, very grassroots organization. It's a big deal. And you, yeah. too, have a National Association of Conservation Districts convention, right? Yeah. Every year is... Is that right? Yeah, we just had it in okay. San Diego this year. Ah, okay, About perfect. 800 of our best friends. And oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, another one in Boston this August. So. Sure. Well, that's great. So, okay... Um, a lot of what we talk about throughout this podcast are things that get pushed through conservation programs that really lead back to CSP and EQIP projects. Um, give us something like, uh, can you give us a tidbit of what's coming up in the future through NRCS uh, and, and conservation programs that you think are so exciting for people here at Commodity Classic? 
I mean, I'm not sure that I could tell you anything new because okay. the Inflation Reduction Act funding was just so huge. And that number um, continues to increase over the next couple of years, right? Um, what I think is exciting is that, you know, even though the Climate Smart Commodities Program, that, um, you know, request for proposals went out two years ago now. And um, even two years later, right, they're still getting the wards out. And um, I think people, we, I just came actually from those yep. meetings, and um, it's really exciting. I think we're going to see a lot of programs, like, finally get on their feet over the next few years, and those all look very different. Well, that's something that we've noticed here just recently is, you know, we talked about how things have changed throughout, you know, decades. And now with more funding coming, the, the dollars that are being put to specific practices is in line and, and, and more attractive. Yeah. And uh, I, mean, I mean, really, I think that's important for these projects to be able to compete what else is out there for, for funding conservation projects. So it's awesome. Well, I'm kind of curious what you guys are seeing in terms of like the private public and um, partnerships, because that's really what Climate Smart is. And, uh, you know, cost share programs, these, these conservation Title II programs are so important, but um, they, we need that market, right? Without the market demand for these sustainably sourced products, you know what I mean? Like, it yeah. can only go so far. So what are you guys seeing? Well, so within, like, uh, from the AgSpy perspective, uh, it, took a, it took a while, right? It took us, I think we've explained this in the podcast, you know, if, you've, if you're an avid listener uh, from the past, um, the, the journey that AgSpire had, at first it was like, okay, four years ago, when I was just doing business development at Melbourne Seeds, I'd be like, well, this is easy, because you got the big companies that are talking about cover crops and pollinator habitat and stuff. All we have to do is go to these big sustainability meetings and, like, wave our arms in the back of the room and say, hey, we know thousands of farms and ranches that are doing these things and would love to connect you with. But really it took us being able to translate what they were doing within the, the goals of what they had, right? So... Um, that's what we're trying to dissect and figure out all the time. But we do have interest. We do have folks that are wanting to come in and sponsor acres. They're wanting to include it in the supply chain. And if you're talking about those things in an in-setting, in a scope three manner, really, it's a huge win-win. There's, there's funding available to do things that you'd like to do in your farm or ranch that make you more resilient. There's uh, the ability to actually associate that with your products, with your end consumers from the largest, some of the largest buyers of agriculture products, that then they can communicate back to their consumers and saying, feel good about eating beef, feel good about, you know, our, our oatmeal product that we're putting out there. And it's starting to get some traction and there's some, some, a flywheel that's starting here where the whole thing is coming full circle. The truth behind what's happening in ag, especially our more innovative and regenerative, you know, minded folks is starting to make an impact on consumers. But it took a while to connect that because like I said, for the first, you know, 80 some, 90 some years that uh, the conservation districts and the 37 years that Millbourne was doing it, it was kind of happening outside of the lens of the consumer. And now it's coming to the forefront and being able to connect it all the way through. Yeah, and you brought up a good point about what the, the, the innovative farmer that's actually leading the charge to this movement is the very, very um, forward-thinking, productive, profitable farmer, right? And, and I think we saw that shift happen here within the last probably only five years. Yep. Prior to that, the people doing some of these conservation-minded programs and, and practices were... I don't want to say they they weren't the largest farmers. Mm -hmm. They were somebody that probably needed to take advantage of an NRCS funded project to keep their farm alive and keep it moving. Um, and so that shift of of that leading farmer mm -hmm. leading the movement f from a production standpoint, from profitability, is now doing it 
with conservation too. And that's yeah. darn cool. Yeah. 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 We're moving to a stage where we're past that, you know, five, six, seven percent, that early adopter, you know, kind of producer yeah. into more mainstream. mainstream. Yeah. And it's not everywhere yet though. Like, no, I mean, I'll talk to some of our seed dealers and I mean, we'll just pick a spot, central Indiana, and they'll still talk about, Oh, well, the, you know, the watershed coordinator is preaching this and, you know, nobody really goes to those meetings or it's, you know, the, the conservation district is doing that. Nobody really pays attention to it. But you broke it, my heart just now. Well, I just want you to know. That. No, I'm saying <laughs> I'm saying that because that's the truth. Like in, 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 in areas where it's taken off, it's it's really gone. And those people are leading the charge yeah. on the ground. Absolutely. And it hasn't quite taken off everywhere yet, but just wait, it's coming. Yeah. Yes. No, absolutely. I think we're <laughs> yeah. on the cusp of something really I agree. big. Yeah. yeah. I think that's great. Well, I hope you have a wonderful Commodity Thank Classic. You. Thanks for joining us. We're going to have a bunch of different guests today, so yeah. kind of shorter segments. We could definitely do a full hour later on, Jen, if, uh, if it works out, you know, yeah. down the road. But uh, thanks so much for stopping in yeah. and joining us. Thanks for having thanks me. Thanks for all you do. Thanks. It's great. And you guys as Thank well. You. Bye. Okay, so we're on to guest two and three. And three. Yeah. We're going to double up here. Two and three, two at once. You need your mic up, Jared? Uh, is it coming Headphones through? Up. Is it coming through? Yeah. Okay. You're good. So we're going to we're gonna introduce our, our, our guests two and three. We're going to do them at the same time. Uh, so, David, go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us where you're from. Uh, so I'm David Shem. Uh, I'm a uh, farmer from Sharon Springs, Kansas. That's uh, located in northwest Kansas. Uh, primarily a dryland uh, operation. We do have just a little bit of irrigated there, and uh, probably primarily work with uh, grain sorghum in the area, corn, and, and wheat on our operation. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Clay, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, Clay Shem uh, from the same town and everything like that. Family operation. So, are you related? Just a hair. I claim him as my dad every now and then. <laughs> All right, father-son duel. Nice. Perfect. This is gonna be good. Okay, so farming in Kansas, dry land. Uh, any livestock or just farmers? Just farmers right yep. now. We used to have some uh, cattle, but uh, our farming operation grew, and uh, Clay came back to the operation, started taking over, expanding his, opera, his own operation, and kind of definitely focused upon the row crops a lot more. And so sure. we just decided... Uh, we, we like to be able to come to Commodity Classic and a few things like that during yeah. the winter and not take That's care of the cows. I tell you what, I have a whole backstory about getting down here today because uh, a feeder wagon uh, tire went uh, flat on the guy that was doing chores for me. And so it's been about an hour today just like troubleshooting stuff in the first uh, eight hours of being gone. So you don't have to deal with that, right? Everything's just kind of pretty calm at home, right? <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a very gratifying feeling when we're in the middle of uh, corn harvest or, or milo harvest. And, and the cows are out, and I can just simply reach over to my cell phone and call up the neighbor and say, hey, your cows are out. Yeah. Instead of being the one getting the phone call and yeah. saying, okay, guys, we got to shut down the operation, no yeah. more harvest, and we got to go get the cows in. Yeah. So, yeah. Although it would be nice to have some cows. I mean, grazing mallow stubble is a great thing for cows. That'd be oh, a, it's, it's be excellent. A great value add. Yeah, definitely. And we're, and we're in that area that uh, uh, the great thing about it is I got lots of neighbors with cows. There you go. There I've you actually go. got a neighbor right now that he's got them on for another week here. Oh, really? Okay. Perfect. So tell us about how that arrangement works. Uh, yeah. So you come in, as you charge per, per acre, per head per day? Uh, do you do any of the fencing, water delivery, that kind of stuff, or do you let them all do all that? So it's a per cow, kind of the standard is a per cow per day uh, situation there. And, yeah, they do they take care of all the uh, fencing, all the water, various things like that. Uh, sometimes there's the negotiation factors that, you know, if there is a, a well or water access on that field and they want to use mm -hmm. it, then... 
uh, cut a, you know work out a little bit of a situation with that there. So no, it works works really well. And, and quite honestly, when you look at what their cost would be when it comes to feeding that animal, that type of grazing is a, a very very efficient way to be able to utilize that, and it helps us too. You know, we, we're uh, pretty awful conscientious in our operation there. Uh, Clay's continuing. I know Clay is, it keeps, it keeps looking at trying to weigh, see ways we can kind of incorporate some cover crops, various things like that into the operation. Uh, my, uh, my granddad came to the area in, in 1920, and at one point he had more miles of terrace in Wallace mm. County than any other farmer. So yeah. a long, long history of conservation there yeah. as we've, we've looked at the area. Yeah. So cover crops in that part of the world, dryland farming, is uh, it's got some challenges, right? Very much so. Uh, obviously, we're in the dry part of the state. Um, not a lot of people know, but Kansas, from the west to the east edge of Kansas, has the same change in annual rainfall as from the east edge of Kansas all the way to the coast. Uh, really? On the east side of the U.S. Crazy. So what's um, your annual precip? In our area there, we run between 16 to 18 inches. Okay. Yeah. Average annually. Average is a fictional yeah. figure that I don't right. think we've ever actually hit, but uh, you get south of me, it gets starts to get really dry. I know I had a friend of mine that served on the wheat board with me, and he was really thankful that he hit five inches of rain in 12 months on a field Ooh, a sure. couple years ago. Wow. Um, so that's kind of what we see there, and so obviously with the cover crops and everything, it's uh, a lot of questions in our area, but cautiously looking at it, looking at what extension is doing, what opportunities there might be. Yeah. And obviously, as we move forward, we've seen a lot of programs like, um, I forget the acronym for it right now. Oh, I know them all. Equip, CSP, yep. Those, and then um, the IRA. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Funding that came out there. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. That they're Climate looking at there. Commodity. You know, you should have been in with our last guest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she knew all the acronyms. She knew all the acronyms. <laughs> yep. But obviously, you know, as farmers, we all know that we're trying to work with the consumer as much yeah. as we can. And so the more we can bring them in into that conversation and let them know the, all the work that farmers already do as well as what we're looking at and what we're trying to incorporate. It's just trying to really build that supply chain and let them know where it comes from. Do you, do you have any fallow acres or do you crop everything every year? So we do have some fallow acres, um, but you know that's one of the challenges are, that we're looking at is, is trying to weigh because because uh, the fallow period is, is just overall it is a very challenging time because it's just nothing yeah. but expenses there is no income coming off of that ground there and so we're we're trying to push the uh, box as much as we can um, and we're we just got a lot of ideas that we're trying to work but yeah we're in an area sure. of, uh, of fallow yep so I see you're on the are you on the national sorghum yes, producers okay yep. and, um, can you talk through some of the outlets that that board is looking to expand with sorghum or how you're marketing your sorghum that your farm grows? So, yeah, you know, the, the U.S. sorghum uh, checkoff program, obviously one of the big players and, and very much affected our operation in our area is China, uh, especially where we're located and with one of the, some, uh, the class one railroads there, it's pretty easy access to go ahead and get up to the PNW and be able to export and move off of that coast yep. out there. Uh, in that era there. So it's definitely working with maintaining those China uh, ties rela uh, relationships there. I haven't had the opportunity, I've had several people know yet, to, to try one of the primary products they use Milo in, which is their, I think it's Baijiu. Baijiu? Baijiu. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've yeah. had a bunch of it. 
Yeah, and I've heard oh. it's horrible. It's awful. And yeah. it's not <laughs> because of the sorghum. A bunch of it's it. not because of sorghum. So I lived in China for about five months. I did a semester abroad over there at China awesome. Egg University back in 2006, I think it was. And uh, the, the way I describe Baijiu is like it's, um, you'd, you'd make a, a, a whiskey or almost gin-like product, but then they like add perfume to it. So it like ends up in your nose. And it's not because of the distillery process. It's because of how they, they flavor it. Ugh. And it's like, there's, there's nothing equivalent to it. Like sake is not even that close to it. It just like, it ends up all in your nostrils. Now, most of the Baijiu that I drank cost about a dollar a liter. So oh. maybe I wasn't buying the very good stuff. <laughs> Um, but when I was over there, but it, it, uh, it's got a distinct, uh, flavor, flavor to it. So if you end up going to China, you will drink a bunch of it. Yeah. It's like somebody who only drank boxcar light for beer and said it was horrible. Maybe though. Maybe, maybe. Could the same <laughs> that could be. I remember one lunch, one business lunch I was over there with my, uh, professor over there where we had 22 shots of Baijiu at lunch. <laughs> oh Lord. At lunch. And then we had to go take a nap afterwards. And then we had to wake up from our nap and go to supper again where they also wanted to get into more Baijiu shots. <laughs> I was like, this is the weirdest business trip I've ever been on because all we do is drink and then sleep it off. I, I think Justin's right, though. You're talking about how bad it is. I'm hearing of a lot <laughs> yeah. of shots. That's yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't say no to any of them, I guess. So yeah. I guess there's there's that. But, uh, but yeah, but I'd say it's hugely important. So I was going to ask you, do you know what percent of sorghum that goes into China goes into Baijiu production? That's probably a number I need to know off the top of my head, but I actually don't know what that number is because, you know, obviously the, the feed and the pig over there is a major component yeah. uh, as well of the grain sorghum yeah. over there. So, no, you know, and kind of back to, you know, your, your first part of your question there was we're also looking at, you know, consumer uses, not just obviously, you know, Milo is a, is a starch, so the renewable fuels is important to grain sorghum as well, you know, as well as just animal feed uh, out there too. But it's also in, I mean, you know, a big big thing out there is obviously the gluten aspect, and it gives people an alternative to the gluten. So, you know, the our, our board actually had just recently bring on a, a national renowned uh, chef to start to work with and incorporate uh, grain sorghum. In fact, when I was coming down here, we were laughing. I looked up a local restaurant. I don't know how they're doing. I'm really intrigued. I want to go there, <laughs> but they have a sorghum brittle cream brulee. Okay. That's either going to be like uh, yeah. so good or like, you know, what were you thinking when you made this? Yeah. Huh. Isn't creme brulee custard? It is. It's uh -huh. a dessert. They're adding a little sorghum to it now. Yeah. Cool. Just sprinkle on top like this salt. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Just go right on top. <laughs> little crunch. A uh, little crunch to you. Otherwise, flan-like. Do you guys want to talk more about your farm? Sure. Yeah. Or whatever. Go that route. Uh, yeah. Tell us. So, what, want, what other crops you raise, and what's the yeah. rotation look like on? So, acres? primarily, we are a, a wheat, corn, sorghum, fallow rotation. And as everybody knows, farming anymore, it's trying to make things work and trying to keep producing, uh, especially as crop prices go down. So, that standard rotation there is very, very questionable. Yeah. Um, we have some fields that it's been. Wheat, corn, corn, sorghum, 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 fallow. It's all based upon what the field's looking like. Yeah. Uh, if we've got a lot of weeds coming in, we actually, unfortunately, we're primarily a no-till operation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In our area, we've had some struggles with perennial grasses, kind of a bunch of grass coming in. Yeah. That even Kansas State University there in Kansas, even their biggest thing, they're like, all right, if you want to go and kill that with a sprayer, would recommend you dragging a plow. Just yeah. it, you can't kill it effectively with a sprayer mm -hmm. and. 
once you get it killed, then you're able to go back in with that no-till for a very solid amount of time. But that's kind of our primary rotation uh, that we run on things and just trying to be very opp- opportunistic in what what the market is calling for, what field conditions are, what rainfall looks like. Because yeah. our biggest, we've ran numbers on it, but the biggest determinant of probability or determinant of profitability in our area is the rainfall we get. Yeah. Uh, market prices do factor in for us, but as an example this year, um, we had, I think, three fields that made over 100 bushels per acre on corn, which for our area, yeah. that's a really great yield to number. get. Yeah. And then most of the other fields were hitting around 50 bushels or less because of hail or drought that hit at the wrong time. We had a lot of grain sorghum that got up real tall and lodged, fell over, couldn't get it harvested. So primarily, and Dad, you can hop in on this, but it's a lot of opportunistic looking at it and where is the opportunity there? What are the best options? And that's kind of the way that we look at it. Yeah. Now, no, Clay did a, a great job kind of summarizing it up, kind of kind of relate to people. And this is where I get a little bit hesitant when you ask me what our rotation is. And the reason why I get a little bit hesitant to say what our rotation is this, and, and, I, and, and I always like to relate the story, and, and Clay, you know what the story is there. Uh, so, you know, maybe from a philosophical standpoint, I don't agree with this the guy, but Darwin observed when he went to the Galapagos Islands that it wasn't the, the, the fastest and it wasn't the strongest and it wasn't the smartest species that survived. It was the species that was best able to adapt. Sure. Yeah. And so that's what we look at on our operation, adapting, adapting to what challenges we have. We had some fields this year that were a planned fallow field. We had great rains came in at the last moment. We quick switched. We put into corn there and harvested close to uh, 90, 100 bushel corn off of that. Turned a typical very high expense rotation of fallow mm-hmm. into a profit-making enterprise there. So that's why, like I say, I get a little yeah. reluctant to talk about what a rotation is, and, and that's why we constantly are looking outside of the box. How can we bring in various other ways of, because it's two facets. It's an income side of it, but it's also building, again, you know, our, our family comes from a long line of conservation, taking care of the ground and building it. So what can we do on both those fronts to bring that greater profitability to operation? Do you, do you bring in any um, uh, ways of collecting data outside of just your your feel into that? So do you, do you have a, uh, a subscription to a program that tells you how much rainfall you got in each field to tell you that? Do you do any, you know, soil probing for or like moisture sensing and things like that? Or is it just mostly understanding your land and being able to adapt to it based on what you know? So, I mean, what our, our philosophy is we definitely love uh, Clay returning. He graduated out of uh, K-State, has definitely uh, taken a lot of lead on the technology. We've still like to embrace technology. And yes, we've worked with moisture probes on, on our irrigation variable rate on that. Uh, you know, obviously soil sampling, uh, working with that. We're doing a lot of different technology uh, that we're trying to approach, but we also try to keep in mind we don't want to be on the bleeding edge of it. We don't mind being on the leading edge of it. And so it's that balance of making sure that we've got a return. We've, we've, he's, we've even actually shifted kind of color equipment here recently just because when he, he looked at, when he came back to the operation and saw what he could do and how he could work with a different color, it's not necessarily cheap to switch colors on an operation, but we kind of we went down that road. And, and there's been some great, I mean, we've seen some bottom line returns. And, and ultimately, that's where we approach from our operation is, is what's returning to the bottom line. Yeah. Perfect. 
Yeah, we talk a lot about cropping systems, right, and how they all start to weave together. And as these systems come together, now we start to stack revenues, you know, because of the additional benefits of less inputs and less costs that you're spending. So I have a question. So if you looked at, so given that you're a kind of a grass, grass, grass rotation, okay, have you tried anything, field peas, sunflowers, any, any other like dry land crops? Buckwheat, kind of Buck safflower. What else could you so do? So we have, we have done sunflowers uh, in the Thank past. You. Um, you know, we've kind of looked at some of the, one of the challenges with our area is, is that with, when you get into the peas, uh, our heat, our heat just okay. tends uh, to really take it out. Yeah. We are, and, and we're high elevation. So where we farm, you know, we're 36 to 3,800 average feet above sea level okay. is where we're farming. And so one of the challenges we get, uh, even with dealing with grain sorghum, we've got just to watch a little bit because our nighttime temperatures cool off. We're a high desert. So our yeah, nighttime temperatures, high. yeah, our nighttime temperatures really cool off, but yet we can get really hot during the day. Okay. okay. So that can present just a lot of challenges going in there. So when we get into some of the peas like that, when we get in those high heat situations there, it can make it challenging there. We're, I know K-State's worked with it a little bit, but we're getting really intrigued and we know it's a lower yield, but how can we work with maybe like spring wheat there so that we can okay. pull off grain sorghum or corn in the fall, have a quote-unquote short fallow period, yeah. you know, three months, four months, drop that wheat in mm-hmm. and, and go in that versus this whole basically year, year and a half long fallow period of going back sure. into winter the wheat. The other thing that I might interject is I'm, I'm cautious on it. Call me a skeptic. I feel like all farmers end up being a little bit skeptical on some stuff. But about 20 years ago, there was a little bit of a push for canola out in our area to kind of get off the grasses. There's a push again, waiting a little bit on our operation, because I do think this is a different, uh, this is different than it was before just because of sustainable aviation fuel, the true um, sustainable renewable diesels coming out. And they're wanting to hit more of those oils. I've had elevators in the area hitting me up. so we are looking at things like that. Again, keeping in mind the weather, yeah. you know, broadleaf, the way that it fertilizes and keeps winter um, yeah. is a little bit different. Have you been approached by Camelina yet? Okay. Yep. So we've been selling Camelina <laughs> here at Noble Renovo for years. In fact, yeah. actually, As a cover crop. Sell, yeah. Yep. How many years ago? I mean, at least seven, eight years. I think probably. it has been that, yeah. yeah. We've been selling, selling Camelina initially as a cover crop, and now we're getting people into buying our products for full season, you know, oilseed production and stuff. It's, uh, but it's that would you talk about a crop that could work well in between a, you know, a, a high grass crop rotation, a brassica species to start to cycle residue faster yeah, would be yeah. really really awesome for and your it, biology. And but. in your failure, I don't know where you'd be harvesting it down there, but even up in the Dakotas, I mean, we're harvesting that a lot in late June. That's I mean, true. You'd be, it's you'd early. Be harvesting that yeah, way earlier than that. Right. I mean, yeah. Earlier than winter wheat by quite a little bit. Yeah. So you'd still get your prolonged period yeah. for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you asked about the sunflowers. We've shied away from the sunflowers just because of the soil depletion they've had on it. And then the other thing, as much as I think I can deal with that, they just don't leave the residue. No. And and we love our residue there as much as we can. And so that just presents a big challenge. And then I got to admit, I got tired of fighting combine fires. Yeah. Yeah. Don't blame you. Yeah. It it just did. Yep. (laughs) that's That's a real thing. Yeah, and so uh, up by us, I mean, we we would go into, you know, winter, you know, shortly after that comes up. So erosion is, is, is an issue with sunflowers, not as big of an issue. But if you're driving through north central South Dakota and you're on a gravel road and you're trying to figure out how to get out and it's been a few days since the plow's been out, and if you see a sunflower field or a soybean field ahead of you, like just turn the other way and go back around because yeah. there's nothing holding anything back. It's all blowing right off of it. 
Well, and, and that's, and again, when we look at an operation there, again, it's that aspect of the broadleaf and the grass, but then we also look on it, we can do, we know we can do a pretty good job on Milo or corn, but the one thing, and, and whenever I grew sunflowers, I had a lot of guys try to approach me, hey, can I graze your sunflower stalks? And I was like, uh-uh, ain't <laughs> nothing touching those sunflower stalks until next year, yeah. because otherwise they blow. Whereas Milo and corn, yeah, yeah. Let, and, and you know, we always just have a principle in our operation, just for the dynamic our areas, is that they get in there, I get the grain off, I don't want you grazing the residue, and then we, we want them off, at least in our area, by the 1st of February, because what we want is hard freezes to get a freeze-thaw cycle on that soil, get that loosened back up from the compaction. I agree. That still makes a big difference, just to yep. make sure that your ground's not getting compacted with the spring rains or something like oh, that. That's, for grazing. that's been a little bit of uh, the degree that I studied and everything had a lot of chance to look at kind of the technical application of data and how it factors into farming and everything. So it's been an interesting thing as far as the compaction side that I remember as a kid, uh, we had a kid running, working for us, running the grain cart. And my dad approached him and was like, hey, stop running over the same tracks here. You're, you're tearing yeah. the ground up. <laughs> I get to college back and get to do some testing on it and everything. And I told my dad, I was like, hey, if we can run over the same tracks that we've already ran over, if we can do that, that'd be great. 90% of the compaction <laughs> damage we do is on that first, first pass. pass. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, no, a little bit about our, more about operation, just because I get a chance, especially as a dad, to brag on him. But, uh, no, we, we're, we're, you know, we also uh, feel that we have a responsibility on our operation not to just, you know, be forward-thinking on our uh, operation and being engaged out there with ag, but we also on a grander scope of, of our commodities and of farm groups. And so, I mean, Clay right now serves as president of the uh, local county farm bureau. He's all he also serves on the uh, Kansas Association of uh, Wheat Growers Board uh, as well as there. And then he's also here a uh, part of the Commodity Classic Affiliate Council Committee. Right. So Very he serves cool. on that. Um, Very active. We uh, <laughs> plenty of boards going on. We're, we're efficient. We try to be an efficient operation. It's just actually we used to have a lot of hired people. We kind of got away from that. We kind of looked at ways we could be efficient and very effective, have the right equipment. So it's just kind of a, a three-person operation with my wife, uh, Clay, and myself. Uh, gone through. I've I've been very my past been very active. Well, president of the of Call Ken Association of Wheat Growers, also president of the National Association of Wheat Growers, and then I was also state FSA director oh, for, okay. for Kansas sure. there. Yeah. So. That's and 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 also was ag advisor for our senator Marshall, uh, so okay. for several years. So we're also involved in that because we feel like as a farmer we have responsibility yep. for our whole industry here to help all farmers That's out great. there. Yeah, and a yep. great place to showcase that is here at Commodity Classics. So. Sure is, uh, David Clay. This has been great. Thank you so much yeah. for stopping in. Love your comments. It. Yep, it's been Thank great. You very, very much. Thank you very much. Jerry. All right, Thank good you guys. Yep. All right, thanks, Justin. We'll see you. Where are you? Oh, no so. I've sat like this quite a bit. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, yeah, your voice is good. Okay, so we're on to uh, guest number four. And it's, it's Usselton. 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 How do you spell this? Russ? Russ Usselton. Russ Usselton. You got it. Shelbyfield, Tennessee. All right, let's hear your chant. You say you're an auctioneer? <laughs> used to be a long time ago. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I sold you, stink meat at Columbia, Tennessee twice a month. Stink meat? <laughs> Sheep and goats. Oh, my oh, God. you're going to fit right that in was, here. <laughs> I've never heard that called stink meat, though. <laughs> what else would you call it? It's certainly not beef. It's um, not beef. It's not, it's not beef. That's nope. true. It's fair. So, it's I, fair. I take, so you raise beef. Yep. Not lambs. No. And you farm. All right, in Tennessee. 
What part of Tennessee? Whereabouts? I'm about 40 miles south of Nashville, Shelbyville, okay. Tennessee. Shelbyville. Okay. Been to Franklin a few times. Yeah, yeah, that's where nice we keep place. all the money. Uh, yeah, I can Looks tell. Like that's it. a nice place. Yeah. A lot of the uh, the country music singers and the entertainers from Nashville live down in there. and around Franklin. There's sure. a nice little bookstore down there. It's got a great Wendell Berry selection in downtown Franklin. Yeah. Been there a couple times. I like it. I don't know who Wendell Berry is, so I can't oh, even add anything to that. That's a whole other podcast. All right. Yeah, yeah, me either. So what, oh. are you, what are you growing? Corn and soybeans. No tobacco? No tobacco. Not for a long time. Darn it. We, you would have been our first tobacco farmer. Well, uh, I've never grown any, but in the mid-90s, out of high school, I made a lot of money working in the tobacco patch. It, doing what? Picking? Cutting, hanging. It's all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Labor. Oh, yeah. And back then, I was getting $10 an hour cash money. I thought I was getting rich. In the 90s, that was good money. That was good money. Now, it, you earned it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I took a lot of pride in the fact that if you could stay with me in the back of the patch, <laughs> you was a man. So did you get paid by the stick or by the hour? By the hour. Okay. Mm-hmm. But you better hump it yeah. getting paid by the hour. Sure. Yeah. You don't get to work long. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about your, your cow operation. Stock cows? Yeah, just uh, cow calf. commercial cow-calf. Yep. And then I background some cattle, too. Okay. Yep, yep. So you're growing your own feed to background them calves? Uh, not much. Most of the feed, uh, we've got a lot of chickens around where I live. Okay. okay. So most of our corn goes to uh, chicken feed. Yeah. So your stockers will be on grass? Yeah. Yeah, okay. How many months of the year can you graze? If you manage it properly, 12. Really? Yeah. But most people don't get that involved with it. But I can, uh, I'll generally have to start feeding hay somewhere around Thanksgiving. If we've got the rain. Okay. And then once I start feeding hay, that lasts until mid-March, 1st of April. So what kind of grasses are your pastures composed of? Fescue. All fescue. Yeah, All well, of it? Yeah, the world revolves around fescue in All my right. part of the country. There's, yeah. some, there's some warm season grasses around, but it's primarily fescue-based. And to fight free of the real stuff. Oh, it's the real stuff. No, the real stuff. There you and, go. And I'm, I'm convinced that our cows... You know, they've grown up on the stuff, and we've yeah. had generation after generation after generation. I don't think it affects them as bad as they think it it does. Yeah. But now you'd see somebody go off to Montana or somewhere buy a registered bull and bring him in. Yeah, he's probably not going to fare all that way. He's going to lose his tail. Yeah. Uh-huh. Heard that. Didn't know it was true, but I believe it. Oh, they will start going backwards. Sure. For sure. Oh, yeah. Yep. Tell us how you how you manage the rotation through the fescue, the growth stages and stuff like that. When do you like to get on it? When do you like to move them? I try to uh, – I just kind of manage it by how much is available, how much it's raining. Yeah. If, it, if the rain's good, when it gets down to four or five inches, move them over to the next one. Okay. And I, a good example, behind my house, I've got about uh, – there's probably about 40 acres of grass back there in three lots. I run 25 to 30 pairs year-round back there, depending on the weather. <laughs> on 40 acres? Yeah. Wow. As long as it's raining. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The fescue just Because we'll coming. get 50-ish inches a year. Okay. Are you putting up your own hay, or are you buying hay? Putting up my own. Okay. What are you haying? That's fescue, fescue. too. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Soil test it, fertilize it. There you go. Start you cutting. Go. You could have a branded beef program built around that. All fescue fed. All yeah, fescue fed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, cool, cool. So, how much? Yeah. Uh, how much? How much? What percent of your uh, operation is calving cows, and what percent of its stockers? Uh, probably eighty percent is is cow calf. Yeah, yeah. Stockers will come and go depending on the market. Yeah. We're we're 
I don't know, depending on how you look at it, blessed or cursed with an abundance of stockyards around where I live. Yep. I can go to the sale twice a day, three days a week within 50 miles of my house. Okay. You buy your own? Within 50 miles? Yeah. That is really cool. Now, yeah. those aren't, uh, you know, that's not Joplin type <laughs> sales. It's it's mom and pop, yep. you know, two, three hundred head deals. The big ones around in a big run, they'll run 2,500. Mm-hmm. Okay. What is, are you, uh, your, your farm that you're on, is this uh, something that uh, is a generational farm? Are you the first no, one there? No, that's the give us that that's, story. Yeah, my story. I'm, I'm the unicorn. I'm a first gen. Nice. I started from scratch with five heifers. Nice. In about oh two oh three, and everybody told me how stupid I was, and it won't work. And uh, I haven't had a public job since two thousand and eight. <laughs> So they can stuff it. <laughs> I love that attitude. It, uh, you did it. It's not easy, and it's scary. And probably one of the things that helped me the most, when I had my first financial wreck, mm-hmm. it was on a cow deal. Uh, it was actually backgrounding some cows. You know, I had a partner. We were buying them out of the stockyard and thin and open and then turning them over as, as bread and heavy. And... We just had a bad deal, and I ended up losing about ten grand, which at the time, to me, I thought the world was going to end. Mm-hmm. But I survived it, and then it that probably, I don't know, it made it worse. <laughs> made it worse? <laughs> I thought you were going to say, from then on, it. I really learned something. and it felt it, bulletproof? You're yeah. Like, ah, if I can do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, because, like I said, yeah. at the time, that was a that was a world ender. Well, if you didn't have another job, you know, like, breaking even's a problem. Like, yeah. losing 10 grand's a real problem if you don't have another job. And and I, I joke with people, my whole operation is smoke and mirrors. <laughs> we only own about 40 acres in two tracks, actually. And probably lease another fifteen hundred or so. Okay. Really. So the ground that you're leasing, tell me about that. What's the landscape of that? Oh, it's it. All my crop grounds leased. Okay. Okay. And most of the pasture, obviously, pasture and hay too. What's the pasture look like? Oh, it's it's hills. Hills. Yeah. I've got one farm, 130 acres, and I've got a 300 foot change in elevation. <laughs> Say that again. How much? It's, it's 130 acres, yep. and I've got a 300 foot change in elevation. Yeah. Cool. So we we farm in between the hills. <laughs> so uh, I'm guessing you know how to do a lot of fencing. Yeah. Oh my God! It never ends. <laughs> what percent of your time you think on the the labor of the operation? What percent of the time is fencing? Some portion of every day, nearly. Yeah. Yeah. What, is it barbed wire? Is it hot wire? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and all woven wire and <laughs> whatever was there. And slick, high tensile wire. And you can whatever it. I can find on the back of the feed truck at yeah. the time. Yeah. The fence itself has probably been there since 1950. <laughs> and it's just junk. And, and it's, you know, it's leased ground, so they ain't oh, yeah. nothing about it. Yeah. You got a fence, don't yeah, you? Yeah, landlord calls and says, hey, you got a problem. Uh-huh. So how have, you, how have you grown your operation from five heifers? Um... I've done a lot of what I call turnout cattle. I didn't realize there's a whole side to the livestock industry that runs off running cattle for other people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> I, I got to thinking about it, and I thought, well, surely somebody out there would pay me to run cattle for them in, in some way. And, yeah, lots of them will <laughs> in lots of ways. I've done 
I've never done dairy heifers, okay. okay. But I know a lot of guys that have. Um, I've I've done Holstein steers, okay. On game, I've done them on partnerships. I've done beef calves, uh, like I said, stalker stalker cows. How's a Holstein steer do on uh, as a stalker? I mean, for as far as gain gain goes compared to a native. What well, you- uh, my my Holsteins, I've got a local feed mill around there, and, and I called the guys and I said, hey man, look. I said, I'm fixing to turn out a load of Holstein steers on a gain deal. Okay. And I said, I need you to make me some feed, and I need it to be hot. <laughs> mm-hmm. I said, because these are Holsteins, and, you right. know, they're going to grow like Holsteins. Right. And so they formulated me a feed, and I told them what my cost of gain needed to be. And at the time, they were getting a lot of uh, leftovers from a Mars plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Okay. So the primary two ingredients of this feed were M&Ms and Twix. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Mars is what he said. Mars, the candy bars. And so they like it. Oh my God, they loved it. <laughs> and he he formulated this feed for me. He said, "Now listen, do not feed this to anything else." <laughs> and those steers got two pounds per head per day. Yeah, on grass, and and they gained two pounds a day. <laughs> that's really awesome. Oh, it was great. They converted like a like a chicken. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, they they were almost efficient. <laughs> But Holsteins, I've, I've got a soft spot for them because that's kind of how I learned to farm was at a, at a dairy. Yeah. You know, yeah. a lot of people go to college to learn business. I learned how to farm. I worked, I went to school at Middle Tennessee State, and okay. I worked at the dairy yep. while I was there. I used to work 80 hours a week while I was going to school. Yeah. And I thought it was the greatest thing <laughs> yeah. ever because I didn't grow up on a farm. Okay. My dad was in the Army for 29 years. And, you know, here was my opportunity to do what I wanted to do, so I, I couldn't get enough of it. Yeah. So I've always had kind of a soft spot for Holsteins anyway. And as cattle, you can't beat them because they're so dumb, they're comical. <laughs> <laughs> you know, most beef cattle, you run them in, bring them through the chute, they're going to be mad at you for a couple of days. Yeah. yeah. Holsteins don't work that way. You can turn them out, and it's tomorrow. Mm-hmm. They'll come right back. <laughs> It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Calm, easy going. Oh, yeah. They, they're like Not dogs. Not too many always, cares. They're always happy to see you. Yeah. And like I said, if, if they're a little bit upset, just leave and come back, and it's tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. I can't believe you haven't grazed sheep. Too many coyotes in my part ah, of the world. All and right, and all we right. just don't have a lot of sheep. Okay. Yep. And, you know, sheep are big country animals. They like wide open spaces like Wyoming, Montana, and out there. We don't have that. Yeah. You know, yeah, woven wire, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. Woven wire, yeah. you know. Yeah, big pasture in our part of the world is 50 acres. Is it? Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, you, but you're not into the trees, right? Like, you, Yeah. No, I don't. Hills and grass. and. Oh, yeah. We got plenty of trees, too. Okay. But, so, yeah. you have to do brush control on your pastures to keep it from getting overgrown with woods? Cedar trees. Okay. So Cedar trees. Mechanical or, or chemical, or what are you doing? Chemical. Chemical? Mm-hmm. What works? Uh, chaparral. Okay. As long as you catch them when they're small, chaparral yeah. roast them. Okay. And if you leave them alone, they'll be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> so what's, what, what's your plan as far as, uh, you know, like a 10-year outlook with, with your operation and farm? I hope to keep growing. Yeah. But we've got so much pressure from development. That that's your biggest threat? Oh my yeah. God! It's it's terrible. In in my county, 
poor ground is worth ten thousand dollars an acre, mm-hmm. and I mean poor is like you can't do anything with it. it won't even perk. Mm-hmm. It's still ten thousand dollars an acre. Mm-hmm. If it's really good ground, you can start at fifty and go up. Okay. Everybody wants to have their own little forty-acre piece. Oh, they're building an hour in Asheville. Houses. Yeah. I mean, just piles of them. They don't even have to be a, a piece. It's just little, you know, quarter-acre lot. Stack them in there like cordwood. Mm-hmm. One of my landlords, his place is 140 acres, and uh, he told me two weeks ago. He said some guy called me on my cell phone. He said I don't know how he got my number. He said I told him I wasn't interested. He said just listen. He said this guy offered me. He said he didn't get 10 million, but he got real close. Ooh. 140 acres. Yeah. And it's just kind of rolling. Be hard not to listen. Yeah. And, you know, he will. I'm probably eventually. Yeah. And there's just, yep. that, you know, I, I like to say I'll, I'll, I'll keep farming until it's all gone. Hopefully yeah. I'm old enough <laughs> yeah. then I can, you know, I can retire. Because <laughs> yeah. huh. you, you can't buy it and yeah. pay for it farming. Yeah. That's a different challenge. Yeah, no, I drove to the airport this morning. Left my house. Uh, after six miles, I got on pavement. Drove on pavement all the way to the airport. And the first hundred miles, I drove through two deserted towns, one town of 100 people, one town of 20 people. That's it. Mm. Can't keep people there. Wow. Now that I think they're all moving to Tennessee. Yeah. <laughs> you guys should look at winter. Winter <laughs> will clear them out right fast. Get one uh, of those. Yeah. Get a winter yeah. or two. Yeah, we're, we're just far enough south that we're pretty hot in the summer but far enough north that we get cold that's what's really funny to people that you know like you that actually have winter yeah if if we get a little bit of snow oh everybody's gonna die yeah well like two years ago we were in franklin they had like three inches of snow and they're like oh you cannot get from Nashville airport to to franklin yeah yeah shut it down shut it down we're done everybody else is in the ditch we're like just cruising right through it going 55 mile an hour and everybody else is just Oh, we, we got over the seven inches of snow in mid-January this okay. year. Oh, water mains were breaking because oh, our yeah. pipes are only like 10 inches deep. Had FEMA, you had FEMA showing up. Oh, yeah. Up yeah, Red Cross, and, yeah, call geez. everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bad deal. One of my buddies, he was out of water a week and a half. Yeah. Crazy. Just melt that snow. Well, the problem was the, the snow was fine, and then it <laughs> melted a little bit, and then it was 10 below. Oh. oh. I mean, we... Actual temp was ten below. Really? Yeah. That's not common. Though. No. no, that's cold in Tennessee. So don't you have uh, you know things that kind of stay green most of the time that get racked by that? Oh yeah. I mean, does that kill like trees and stuff? Well, it can. Yeah. Really? Wow. What we get worse than anything is ice. Oh yeah. You can't do nothing with that. Yeah. You can't. You can't scoop that. Mm-mm. You can't, can't drive it. on it. You can't do anything when the trees start breaking. Power goes out for everybody. It's it's awesome. You heard it here. It's a miserable place to be. Do not build a house south of Nashville. <laughs> That's exactly Stay right. Away. Yeah, <laughs> property's high. You're still going to get all the weather. Just stay clear. It's cow country. Yeah, they just keep coming though. <laughs> Russ, thank you so much for joining us. Really, hey, thanks appreciate for it. having me. Yeah, been good. Thanks for joining right. the podcast. We'll see you. Well, we hope you enjoyed another episode of the Roots and Ruminants podcast. Uh, let us know what you thought of it. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, all those social media things. And, uh, you know, if you ever have any questions, just give us a call. Um, we've got a toll-free number here at 888-498-7333. Be glad to hear from you. Thank you.